Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I am your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. And you are in luck. You've caught us. You've caught us on a good one today. I'm really excited to be sharing this episode because right now we are in the midst of spooky season. So all month long here on Stamper Cinema, we're going to be talking about scary movies. We'll be talking to really interesting people. And today we've got kind of like, I don't know, like a home run of all of the above, right? I'm extremely excited. Not only are we interviewing an amazing guest who's the host of Hellbent for Horror, the podcast that you all know and love. And if you don't know it and you don't love it, you need to hop on that shit right now because it's incredible. And also the author of Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. Yes, yes. We've got S.A. Bradley. I'm 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 super, super jazzed to share this discussion with you. Now, this interview took place maybe about a month, month and a half ago, the one that you're about to hear. And from the moment I hit record, we were we were just chatting and so much to the point where I actually forgot to do a proper intro, even though, as you're going to hear it in a second, I start off with asking how he wants to be addressed. And then the conversation just goes on and on and on. We originally outset, uh, we originally set out to do a recording for about 45 minutes. But as you're going to see, we went on for well over 90 minutes. In fact, after we hit stop, he and I chatted for like another 30 minutes. And this all like happened around like his dinner time. He's like, hey, you know, we're going to chat for about 45 minutes, but I got to eat. Uh, it, it's really amusing. But the guy's awesome. You're going to love him. He's a wordsmith. I mean, everything he says is just like silky as all hell. But enough of me talking about it. I'm going to let you actually listen to him right now. So please welcome the show S.A. Bradley, or I'll let him explain the best way to address him. I usually say uh, S.A. is a great way to start when you're introducing me, but after that, Scott's fine. And there's a story behind that, which is that uh, there's another Scott Bradley who I know uh, through Facebook, who was a screenwriter before me and uh, also did a book called The Book of Lists, Horror. With uh, He was co-writing that with two other people. So when I was starting out, it was kind of like, well, I should probably change it up a little bit. And S.A. Uh, has that distance from it. So, you know, Scott's a sensitive person. S.A. doesn't really give a shit what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what is the uh, uh, the rating and stuff here? So I, I want to make sure that I don't swear if you you're, you're prefer no swearing or anything like that. I'm a former sailor. It's OK. You're OK. You're you're, you're, you're totally allowed. I I try not to drop a lot, but. I mean, sometimes the conversation will dictate that if I'm if I'm quoting somebody and there is F bombs or sometimes I get really, right, really pumped up on something and I'll just be like, you know, uh, George Carlin up in here for a minute. You, know, you never know. You never fair, know. fair enough. Fair enough. OK, as long as I know, I like to make sure uh, I, I've made the mistake before. <laughs> Again, the whole idea is you choose the subject matter and we talk about it now, typically. Okay. A lot of people, all they want to talk about is comic book movies, and that's all well and good. But <laughs> now I've got somebody that is a horror, you know, horror aficionado, horror, horror movie expert. And it's like, yes, this is, you know, it's two years in the making. Now I've now I've got <laughs> I've got somebody uh, to to have that conversation with. So I'm I'm I'm. I give a lot of credit to why horror is actually getting out of the uh, out of the dungeons per se. 
uh, to comic book movies. I think comic book mm-hmm. movies and even all the way back to I, I say Star Wars, Jaws uh, and Rocky kind of were this triumvirate of movies that allowed the difference between pop culture and art to kind of disappear. It took uh, 30 years, almost 40 years for it to finally happen. But I think that the uh, line between pop culture and straight art uh, or pop art, uh, popular cultural art has disappeared. And when you start having people talking about, you know, Avengers Endgame, the way that they talked about Godfather 2 at one point, you know that there is a difference that has happened, that there is an acceptability to what used to be considered greasy kid stuff, that there's been a depth that was brought into it and an acceptance that uh, mm. the uh, the geeks have inherited the earth, more is the pity in some ways. But at the same point, the geeks have inherited the earth. They have uh, rested that mantle away, uh, which I thought was always a fake mantle anyway. It was basically, uh, uh, I think, an over uh, a layover from film always feeling like the redheaded stepchild to theater and television always feeling like the redheaded stepchild to uh, film. There was always this thing of uh, the other arts were kind of uh, uh, there beneath us. So from the very beginning, once you had the once movies came in and you had things move away from stage, I think that you had a lot of the artists who were involved in that, the theater folks who became teachers uh, of all of the artists that were out there and film students who found out from the theater people how to block scenes. I think there was always this thing of theater always saying, nah, that's that's more of a uh, a distasteful art form. And I think that it uh, hit things like horror very much. They wanted to elevate the things that were closer to theater, drama. So drama is the highest form of storytelling that you can tell. And everything under that was kind of denigrated. So you see a lot of that through the actor's studio and especially the critics of the uh, 50s and the 60s, where they're basically saying, you know, the uh, the Andrew Sarris's and the Pauline Kales and all those folks were always making this distinction about how uh, this was what uh, storytelling is supposed to be, the drama. And then it's like, oh, look at this silly stuff that they're doing here uh, with horror films and science fiction. And, oh, it makes me yawn. And uh, I, I believe that the artists fell into that as well because they wanted to please. And when you're told by all of your sources that certain things are less than, you kind of believe it yourself. And so now those people are dead. And because of that, <laughs> we are able to have you know, a, a, re, a resurgence, a renaissance for uh, pop art. Well, I love that. I mean, that was a, a wonderful kind of like natural like segue into the discussion that we're going to have. And at this point, I, I don't know how I will introduce this episode because all of that was 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 fantastic. But for this discussion, I have to at least call out the shirt that you're wearing. Are you know, are you a are you a motorhead guy or, you know, like, oh, you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. I, I'm an old uh, heavy metal guy. And I mean, uh, it's it's kind of de rigor, I guess. Uh, but I do say that there's uh, there are Venn diagrams that we all kind of live. And I think that there's a certain kind of person who uh, I really uh, tend to uh, uh, reflect off of very well, or I tend to have as friends. There are people who have uh, a little bit of a tangential circle with heavy metal. Uh, they have a tangential circle with punk. They have a tangential circle with dark, uh, darker movies like Sam Peckinpah films and things like that. Uh, they have a, a, a side of them that has a, a little bit of a queer side. They have a side that is a little bit of a kink side. 
uh, all those things come together in a certain spot, and that's my people. And uh, I find that uh, uh, I'm compelled uh, to be friends with people who are I'm fascinated by people who are compelled to create. In other words, the people who get into all of that stuff tend to be obsessive <laughs> and they tend to really love what they love and they can't just be on the sidelines. Uh, they can't just watch films. They need to express themselves artistically in some form, whether it be podcasting, whether it be films, whether it be making records and having a band, all of that stuff. So that's a long answer to, yes, I'm a heavy metal guy, but I'm also a punk fellow and I'm really thinking more about horror being the punk of cinema than the heavy metal of cinema. It's always been heavy metal and horror have been connected, but it's almost like that's a lazy uh, response at this point. I think as time has gone by, I'm seeing more of a DIY attitude and I'm seeing how horror uh, is having some of the same issues that happened with punk, which was always open to any idea at one point and was somewhat relentless in, in, in its creativity. And it was all do it yourself. You could make uh, a band out of nothing and the fans would love you anyway, which is something that horror fans tend to do. Uh, you can make a movie that looks like it's made out of uh, chicken wire and we're still going to love it if the heart is there. And all of that seems very much more punk, but also the idea that as it gets more popular, you have uh, the suburb kids coming in, the suburban kids who bring a, a certain level of, uh, of uh, brutality to it uh, samey sameness to it, uh, and, and some spots misogyny and, uh, and a lot of things like that. And that's happened with horror. Uh, and I like to call it out when I see it. Uh, and I like to promote it as, uh, I love it. Uh, but I'm literally like, uh, 50, 50 on the idea of which outsider music tends to go best with horror. Mm -hmm. It's very simple that, uh, you know, my, uh, my first bands are like Judas Priest and, and Black Sabbath. So ancient bands. Uh, but at the same point, I uh, came into punk later in life in my 20s. Uh, that sounds later, but yeah, it is, uh, considering the other one was in early teens. Uh, and what I found is that there is such a large group of fans who are big into punk. And those that are creating films tend to be punkers. You know, mm -hmm. I think they get into the DIY attitude of it. So uh, Motorhead's huge for me, uh, which is why I'm wearing the shirt. <laughs> and so is Judas Priest and a few others. But uh, I'm also just as big with like Fang and uh, Agent Orange and stuff like that. Right, right. Uh, whenever I think of Motorhead, and granted, my introduction would have been, I don't know, like when I would have been in like the seventh or eighth grade. And at that point, it was toward like the tail end of kind of their their their, their peak years or whatnot. But I do think of the movie Airheads, which is the, yeah. the 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 great quote, you know, is who'd win in a wrestling match between Lemmy and God, and he's like, <laughs> Lemmy's like, eh, trick question, Lemmy is God, and right. <laughs> I, I, I think about that, and yeah, I mean, he was an iconic, you know, front man for a band, and oh uh, god, did, yeah. What's great about a band like uh, uh, Motorhead is that there are a few bands. ACDC was another one, which is strange to say. Uh, but they were embraced by the punk uh, uh, groups in the very beginning, the punk fans. People weren't sure. Was this a real, you know, are they making fun out of rock and roll or were they punk or were they metal? Because you had a guy dressed as a school kid dancing around <laughs> with a guitar. They had no clue. So they were beloved in that way. And the same with Motorhead. Motorhead was one of those first bands that brought that thrash feel into it. 
that they were beloved both by metal and by punk. And uh, the thing that was great about Lemmy is that he said, fuck all those labels, it's rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And so he just always called, uh, we are a rock and roll band. We are Motorhead. We are a rock and roll band. And I love that. I love, uh, I, I tend to try to say horror and try not to get it too much in the sub genres and things like that. I know we'll talk about that. But uh, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who feels that most of the time labels are rarely inclusive. They're usually velvet ropes that go up. There's some kind of separation. I believe in labels for poison. Now, I believe in labels for medicine, but I think uh, in our entertainment so, so often, just like we do with uh, uh, political views and social views and, and our rhetorical conversations even, we label things. And uh, I, I like the idea of Lemmy saying, it's all rock and roll, man. It's just rock and roll. You know, you want to get scared? Uh, watch a horror movie. Uh, not every horror movie is going to scare you, but it's going to scare somebody. It's a very big umbrella and it's open to everybody and it wants to scare everybody. It's universal in that fashion. I'm, I'm curious, obviously, you know, you, you've, you've worn a lot of hats, but I, I really would like to talk a little bit. Well, shit, I'd like to talk about everything, but <laughs> to maybe like kickstart our, our conversation is your podcast. Now, big fan. Um, Thank you. you know, I've been, I've been, you know, uh, kind of like going through that back catalog and there, I've got several questions from several different episodes <laughs> and um, really even before I uh, now, you know, yeah, screw it. I, I, I got to get to it because of the fact that, I love that your favorite uh, Stephen King adaptation is The Mist because it almost feels like it's one that that those that are big like horror film like junkies they love it, but also it's one of those movies that I feel often gets overlooked. And that episode yeah. that we did where you really like talked about the uh, it was it was your it uh, episode and just oh, yeah. when you started going back through talking about your favorite Stephen King adaptations that The Mist uh, came up and. I just had to, before even ask you a question, just give you a little like, you know, fist pump, like, well Thank done. You. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the mist is one of my favorites. And that is uh, where I can always tell a horror fan. And I don't like to say that there's different levels of horror fans or anything like that. But there are people who are just really, you know, junkies like myself. They appreciate the mist so much because it does what horror says it's going to do. It walks it like it talks it. It gives you a monster movie. It gives you great characterizations. It talks completely about what's happening in our culture at any given moment. Uh, One of the things that King's great at is mob rule stuff and bullies. He understands bullies. And he understands how uh, people who are uh, picked on by bullies, when they finally have power, become worse. You know, they get this, the the rage of vengeance uh, fires them so much. And all of that is in the mist. And it also ends in a horror fashion. You know, it doesn't end in a, there's no way that you can look at the end of that film and not feel that you've watched a horror film. And a lot of times uh, people uh, who make films up, upset the apple cart and then quickly put all the apples back so you can go back into the real, real world without that pain. But uh, Frank Darabont went for it. And I think even if we feel that it's a gut punch, even if we don't watch it every week because it's so much of a pain to watch that ending, we respect the hell out of that ending. And it's Mm -hmm. one of those things where I've heard people who are not big horror fans go, I really love that except the end. The end was just too much. And uh, it does put a line in the sand for some folks. 
but I give him great credit for that, uh, Darabont. And, uh, you know, and King's ideas are, are really strong, too. So I'm glad that you brought up uh, the mist. It is uh, kind of it's not forgotten, but it's it's infamous more than it is famous. Mm. I think people mm-hmm. know about it uh, and uh, the ones that do love it, cherish it. I know that it's it's like so many directors. Uh, Carpenter loves the thing, and it's the one that nearly destroyed his career. Right? It's his favorite film. And Darabont, same thing. You know, Darabont. That movie was made for nothing. They didn't want to give him anything for it. You know, and uh, he made it anyway. And he refused to change the end. And because it has so much of him in it, he loves it. You know, and, and I think sometimes we uh, we do love the thing that is. Uh, most us, but also damaging. And uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot in there. I hope I can answer the questions because you're saying you're going to go back in my catalog. Uh, I, I hate to say that I, I've probably forgotten more about my stuff than I remember. Uh, and, that, and that's totally fine. It, it was more than anything. I'm, I'm just kind of interested, obviously, just one to introduce you to other, you know, others out there because I've just grown fascinated with one, your voice and two, just kind of your your sincerity over uh, of over the subject matter. I mean, this is something you're, you're not just somebody that oh, I like to talk about horror. I mean, there is a real passion. I mean, you listen to your your podcast and whether you're, you know, you're reading from something or whether you're, you're speaking directly into a microphone. I mean, there's something very, very lyrical about what you're saying. And it's just very poetic. And it's just like it, it's it's a good ride. And I'm not trying to just like pat you on the back, but it when you when you hear these voices of people that they know a subject matter and they're able to articulate it in in such a way because your whole tagline is I, I don't know but, if we mentioned the name of the, of the podcast yet. So oh my I'll god, just you're absolutely right. That yeah. Hellbent for Horror is the name of my podcast. It's about everything that's related to horror. I talk about horrors, art, and social commentary. I talk about movies and books and music and art, uh, painting even. Uh, that affected me in some way and uh, how it shaped me and how these stories uh, shape uh, uh, the the style of art, but also talks about the culture in and of itself. And the culture cannot help but uh, change and alter where horror is going and horror cannot help but alter and change uh, where the culture is going. So I, I look at horror as one of the most beautiful storytelling styles that we've got. It's uh, it's one of the oldest. I think I always call it the second oldest. The first story is everybody getting together around the campfire saying, oh, we are family. We are strong together. And the second one is don't go in the fucking woods. Something will eat you. <laughs> so the cautionary tale tells you about what it means to be in that family that you talk about with the first story. And so it's allegory, metaphor. It's tailor-made for it. It gets us talk about what it means to be human, the ugly, juicy parts of being human. And we get to put that in a, uh, a distance of safety. It's funny that we go to the thing that is horrible to be able to have a safe handshake with the horrible parts of ourselves because we put it into a story as opposed to being all about us. So it gives us a safe place to talk about the things that we, the monsters that we can't ignore. You know, we try, but we can't. The, the the tagline that you like to use for Hellbound, uh, Hellbent for Horror is that you're here to remind us of that we used to love horror movies and that we secretly still do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the people who are listening love horror films, never stop loving horror films. But I was aware that what I wanted to do was uh, jump in to like the regular art world, the regular drama world, the place that I've had to live most of my life. And 
uh, just kind of listened patiently while everybody denigrated what I loved, but talked about theirs as a certain at a certain level. So I wanted to remind people they always loved horror movies. Uh, they always loved that story. They always loved that being able to touch the darkness. But you, just because you love one horror movie doesn't mean you have to love all of them. And there's so many different styles. So I, I like to say that you secretly still do to kind of get people who are not horror fans to listen and then hear me say something more than what they may hear somewhere else uh, that justifies it. I mean, I grew up at, uh, I was alive when The Exorcist was in the theaters. I was mm. way too young to see it, but I was alive when it was in the theaters and it became this sensation. I remember people clutching crucifixes in line to see this damn movie and it was up for best picture. And so I grew up at a time when what I was told was that movies could change the world. This was the golden age of cinema of the 70s, where every movie had a message. Every movie, uh, and they're still all political. Fuck people who say that they're not. You're just, uh, when you say that they're not political, that's about the most political thing that you can say. Like it's somehow in a vacuum, stories just suddenly appear. But uh, they're always talking about what's going on. So in the 70s, even my dad talked about movies at a elevated level, I guess you could say, uh, more than just a pedestrian level. And so I always said, well, if movies can change the world, so could movies, you know, uh, horror movies, that is. And I was like, uh, I should be able to talk about horror movies. That one. And they're like, no, you can't talk about horror movies like that. They're terrible. And so my whole life has been a kind of this debate. I've been in a debate uh, since my, I was eight years old. And it's just this thing of I feel strongly enough about horror that I don't ignore that other uh, genres exist. I will put uh, Jaws up against Rocky. I will put The Thing up against uh, uh, Passage to India. You know, we'll talk about different things. I, I have no problems in talking about it at the level of drama. If I feel that they're truly great art, they can deal with that stuff. And that's one of the things that I like to do in my, my podcast is I don't just talk about horror movies. I'll bring up that there's a whole world around there, that uh, there's other art forms that are expressing themselves in such a way. And how oftentimes horror movies are the ones that, uh, is that me? Is my dog? No, that's my dog. Don't worry. Okay. Because <laughs> my dog's in the other room. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Apologize. Uh, no worries. No worries. Uh, but uh, where was I on that? Um uh, but uh, anyway, I think uh, where I was going with it was that uh, I always felt that uh, horror could uh, stand up against any of the other art forms that are there. And what I like to talk, that's what I was going to say. Uh, so what I love to show is how often uh, mainstream dramatic uh, films tend to steal from horror. How many movies are actually horror movies in disguise? Like The Unforgiven is a horror movie in disguise. There are several. Uh, there are the beginning of the first half of Full Metal Jacket is a horror film. Yeah, And it could be a silent film in some ways. You can take out all of the stuff and visually that movie fly, flows forward. Uh, I, I, I talk about like Joker was a horror film. It does the same thing that another horror film that nobody calls a horror film, Dirty Harry, uh, was all about, which is you have to create a world, a horror movie world for Dirty Harry to make any sense. Uh, and so what that means is that nothing works. It goes all the way back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is the beginning of German expressionism in horror. And so in German expressionism and horror, nothing works. Everybody's corrupt. The streets don't work. The, the, the buildings are bent over. 
everything is the internal agony being shown externally. And that's what, when you look at the San Francisco of, uh, of uh, Dirty Harry, you don't see one tourist area. It's all at mm-hmm. night. I think 70% of that film is shot in darkness at nighttime uh, and it's shot in alleys and it's shot from hero perspective and then villain perspective. It changes, you know, the, the low angle uh, for Dirty Harry in the beginning when he's just a cocky cop. But then by the end, when he crosses the line and starts becoming an executioner, there is mm-hmm. this whole psycho part of that film where he's just following people with dark glasses on. It's really interesting. You look at that movie, nothing works. Firemen don't even know how to get a guy from the stop from jumping out of a building. Dirty Harry has to go up there and get the guy down. You know, the, the courts don't work. The sheriffs don't work. The police don't work. Nothing works. Only the bad guys and Dirty Harry exist in, in that nightmare world. Because you need to have a world so off kilter that nothing works for you to be able to accept Dirty Harry as the answer. And that's what happens in The Joker. You know, Joker is a mm-hmm. horror movie where everything is terrible. He's forced. He's compelled by the fates to become what he is at the end of that movie. And that is a horror movie universe where we are compelled to go in one direction, where the insane becomes sane because things are so insane. And whenever anybody argues with me about Dirty Harry, I say, okay. There's a line in the sand. Who moves the line in the sand? You tell me if that's a happy ending or you tell me if that's a horror movie ending. Bad guy is just the bad guy. But our good guy, who's supposed to be truth and justice, moves the line, erases the line, moves it towards evil, stays there. In fact, at the end of the movie, he throws his, his medal away, his, his uh, badge away. He knows. We know it's a possession movie. Watch that movie as a possession movie. And halfway through, there's a demonic possession that happens. <laughs> um, now, also on your podcast, and by the way, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed that. So I, I never really necessarily looked at Dirty Harry as a horror film, but I totally see that. And you, you see that in many other other films. I mean, shit, I mean. Whether you're talking about Joker, I mean, you can look at the same thing in Taxi Driver, which is quite literally more like a horror film as well. Oh, yes. But just to get in more like that literal aspect, and you had referenced your father and, you know, something that you talk about on your podcast. And and even if I don't necessarily use it in my own vernacular, uh, I still talk about the same idea as a principle, which is that, to use your own words, that first kiss, that movie that introduces you to... To, to you know the the world of horror and in the case of you you, you you've referenced your father and that was somebody that yeah. that played a part in um you know in, in your life and that idea of the the first kiss I, I don't want to put words in your mouth but how would you kind of how would you explain that to maybe the listeners that are here that, that you know just to simplify that, sure. that terminology sure well the first kiss isn't necessarily the first horror movie that you've ever seen I, I think of it as it's it's like the, the first physical kiss that you have. It's something that's forbidden, uh, that is yours. You probably saw it a little bit too early for how you should have been, but it affects you deeply. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it affects you well. Like a bad first kisses can be bad, but the thing is, you're obsessed by it, and the rest of your life you kind of spend trying to get that first kiss feel again. And uh, I think that the, the first kiss is the movie that is yours. Like you talked about my dad. I talk about how my dad, uh, I had court-appointed horror. In other words, all the horror movies that I watched to a certain age were done by my dad. My dad said, no, you can't watch that. That's way too scary. No, that's way too racy. That's way too bloody. You can watch this one. They were all the movies that made him scared as a kid. 
So I'm watching black and white giant ant movies, giant tarantula movies, the thing from another world, all of those things. And they're fun to watch. And I'm excited by them. And I am a little bit scared by them. Uh, but they're not mine. It really took getting uh, like a bite taken out of me by a movie. And uh, that happened when I was unattended. And uh, so to me, the first kiss is the movie that gets under your skin uh, that makes you go down the path of I need to watch more horror movies. Like all of a sudden you're, you just become uh, obsessed by trying to get that energy, that feeling again. And sometimes we're trying to get a buzz that isn't particularly comfortable when you're first going through it. And I think uh, that in itself has a weird medicinal feel to it. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. I was in northeastern Pennsylvania in a coal mine town. Uh, and my family was uh, very conservative. Uh, my family actually ended up becoming uh, involved with a uh, fundamentalist cult that thought the world was going to end in 1975. So it was all about numerology. It was all this stuff. So I was told as a kid, demons were absolutely real, sitting right next to me, trying to get me to sin. Uh, everything was a sin. Sex was a sin. Uh, but even like having like a shirt like this is a sin. You know, mm. uh, this putting putting something before God. You know, I'm worshiping. By wearing this, I'm worshiping. And so I grew up in, in that kind of uh, society, at least early on. And uh, from the very beginning, it was fake. And it became obvious when 1976 happened. Because 1975, <laughs> uh, the world didn't end. Uh, so I was, uh, I was checked out at that point, but I was living in a family that refused. They just said, well, any day now, I guess we got the abacus wrong. Uh, and uh, the number is just off. So uh, they are still, you know, they're still, this thing is still alive, this cult. And uh, they're they're out there doing all this stuff. But I was I was kind of caught in a house that I didn't believe in this stuff, but I had no choice. So I was becoming a horror fan deep below. I felt the anxiety of, uh, you know, being part of some weird persecution. Uh, I was also uh, seeing that my family was falling apart. So this is supposed to be a very uh, forthright and righteous uh, group of people in this religion. But my parents we're getting a divorce and divorce back at that time, 1975 was still very, especially in a conservative coal mine area, almost 90% Catholic in that area. Um, that was a big sin. That wasn't, you know, I went to school and had kids say, what, what did you do? Like I was somehow uh, part of the problem why my parents got divorced. And so that might've helped me have a, a high self image at certain times. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, horror came into play at the right time because uh, ex- existentially, emotionally, spiritually, I was in complete fear and turmoil. I thought the world was going to end at any time. My family life seemed to be ending. I thought maybe I was wrong. There's demons everywhere. And so I ended up seeing a very weird esoteric art film by mistake uh, called Don't Look Now. And the beginning of that movie, uh, first five minutes of it, is basically a very surreal, uh, artistic, uh, non-linear storytelling style uh, around a child drowning. And the parents are inside of the house, but the child, the little girl drowns in a pond while they're inside playing around. And 
Um, I watched this thing and everything about it is experimental and weird and uh, very unsettling. And Nicholas Rogues don't look now is incredible. It's still talked about that first five minutes is like if somebody's watched, they go, Oof, man, uh, Donald Sutherland still can't watch it. He was the star. Uh, he says, I can't watch that movie. Once I had kids, there was no way I could watch it. And so it really hits hard uh, on, on this stuff. And uh, for me, I watched and I went into like shock. I was eight years old when I saw it. But I felt like I needed to watch it again. So I had major nightmares for two nights in a row or three nights in a row. I can't remember which now. And I couldn't tell my dad why, because I was the scaredy cat. And they knew that, you know, I, uh, if I watched this, I was in serious trouble. It was an R-rated movie with big sex scenes and everything in it. A lot of gore. Well, not a lot of gore, but certainly for a child, certainly a lot of blood. And um, so I kept it hidden. And I had this like hair of the dog, the bitch kind of feel about it. I needed to see it again. And so I did. I snuck it because this was back when HBO was the trial thing and they would show stuff at any given time of the day. <laughs> and uh, I, I ended up seeing it and I felt better. And this is one of the weird things about me and some of the people that I know that are big horror junkies. It somehow helps us feel better about the trauma in our lives watching horror films. And uh, it's not like it spoke directly to me, but what it did, at first you think that the reason that you were horrified by the moment was because it's a kid drowning. But on further review, as time has gone by, I realize what it was, was that parents can't save you. I realized that my parents were a danger to me in a way. You know, I had no idea if they were going to be stable around my life, you know, nothing like that. And so when this happened, um, uh, this movie, I, what I went to was it told me stuff that was in my head that I couldn't say out loud to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like the movie was talking to me. It, it somehow let me feel that I wasn't alone. And I didn't know why that mattered. And I don't know why uh, if I felt bit like that. But I felt stronger watching it a second time and not having nightmares. And all of a sudden, it was like something I could control. And I think into my adult life, that's one of the things that's great about horror is that the real world can kill you. <laughs> but horror movies can't hurt you. And there's something to being able to watch a horror movie and reflect some of the madness that's in the world and have it. I can control it. At any point, I can get up and leave the theater. I can hit pause. I can turn off the TV. It's not in control of me. But if I make it through, that feels like an accomplishment. That feels like a reward. And so uh, to me, uh, the horror movie just allows me this, uh, this safe handshake with the darkness of the world and, uh, and gives me a, a moment of pause. Uh, I, can, uh, I don't have to fear what I'm actually being scared by uh, in the way of these images. In the end, it's going to be okay. And, and so I think that's, that's part of where I, I went with my, my first kiss. And, you know, I'm still trying to find the one that's going to hit me like that again. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's great about that is it is such a, that I mean, specifically that first kiss is it's such a great like conversational, like starter. You can hear somebody's journey and, and you just hear how, the world affected them. And what's also fun is that everybody has something completely different, right? Whether, yeah. you know, your, your baby boomers, you know, maybe they were affected by 
I don't know. Shit. I, I don't know. Maybe it was the fly, right? You know, it could have been, it could have been anything or, you know, Gen X is, it could have been the other fly, right? I mean, it doesn't matter, right. you know, just, I mean, everybody could have something different and whatever they're going through. And there's a story for all of that. And yeah. I, I love that just to just hear one person's uh, specific story and, and where that leads. Yeah. I am curious, I just, just in your, just, you know, in your, background and you obviously talk to a lot of people do you tend to find a, a common thread that there's a certain movie or a certain uh franchise or a certain genre right. that people also experience that well i think you you hit the nail on the head with uh that for gen x's it could be this it could be another for a different generation i think it's always it happens when you're young you know, it happens usually when you're you're going to watch something that you're not supposed to watch. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's this rite of past. You have to go into the de- uh, you have to go into the woods, you know, and you got to lose the dog that was with you, and you have to do it alone. <laughs> you got to you got to find your way through. There's something that just has to happen in that fashion. Uh, and what I love about what you're saying is that it, it can be different for every person because horror is incredibly. Uh, subjective. In other words, what scares me might not scare you. What scares you might put me in a coma. There's no guarantee uh, that two people are going to feel the same way because it's very personal. It's very intimate what scares you. And so uh, what I do find, though, is that there are certain movies that just have uh, like Jaws, uh, Alien, Child's Play. Those are big ones. I hear those guys a lot. Uh, and I hear the shining every so often. I usually find the shining is for people who come to horror a little bit later. They're like, ah, you know, I was never a big fan, but then I found this person who told me I should watch something. It's like the shining was really good. Uh, so I, I hear that a lot. Uh, it's usually very populist ones, right? And I think if you go back to, uh, uh, the generation before I mentioned giant ants and giant tarantulas, those were the big movies, you know, them was a, a very big film. Godzilla would be another one, you know, where, uh, it basically was a event. It was a popular culture sensation especially something like Godzilla. I mean, Godzilla is a Japanese film that's dubbed and they just added Raymond Burr into it uh, to uh, bring, uh, bring it to the United States. But this is a movie that's made within a decade of Hiroshima and Nagasaki being bombed, the end of World War II, the nuclear assault on uh, civilians, right? So you have this bombing happen. This is kind of like if we made a horror movie that was a direct, right in your face, look at 9-11, like five years after 9-11. There's no fucking way we were going to do that. The the screams of too soon would have been heard everywhere. But the Japanese came up with this idea of this god, the god of hubris, comes out of the sea. He doesn't attack San Francisco, doesn't attack New York, attacks Tokyo. You know, that's some deep ass shit right there. That's talking about uh, understanding what you have wrought by uh, by tempting uh, the madness of other people. You know, there's a certain degree of uh, self guilt around what happened to the Japanese people in that there was a complete ownership when they uh, finally did uh, uh, surrender. There was a complete 
ownership of how wrong they were. They actually went after prisoners of war, uh, people who were uh, on the run. They went after Germans because they uh, were so horrified by what they had brought for themselves. So you have this whole thing of Godzilla appearing. Uh, that was, is highly seminal. Now, I knew none of that, but I was a big Godzilla fan. Uh, my dad was a Godzilla fan because it happened during his time period. Uh, after that, uh, I hear Scream. You know, I, I will hear Scream a lot for people uh, that came up in, uh, say, maybe towards uh, the end of Gen X and early millennials, uh, because that was like the big franchise at the time. Uh, sometimes I'll hear, uh, you hear a lot of, uh, of Friday the 13th because it's just so pervasive. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like McDonald's, you know, the, uh, it's a McDonald's of horror. Everything uh, has a little bit of Jason in it. Uh, it was an entire decade owned by this this character who was kind of interchangeable uh, with fate and, and all these other things. It, it became something that even people who weren't horror fans could kind of watch because they weren't they weren't like really trying to scare you. They were mm-hmm. trying to gross you out, uh, but they were they weren't really trying to scare you. I think at a certain point they, they kind of got commodified. So I hear that one every so often, uh, but I would say most of the time, the ones that really jam people are like Jaws. Jaws is universal. Any any generation, Jaws is like the perfect horror film. It's one of the very few perfect horror films, I think. I mean, it makes sense. Our planet's like 75% water, right? I mean... <laughs> exactly. I mean, and literally, the, 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 the whole thing is... Um, you know, he, uh, Spielberg turns the ocean into the underside of your bed, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a creature yeah. under your bed. And so don't put your toes in. Uh, it's so primal. It's so simple and so primal uh, that it, it affects everybody. And Alien just has that whole thing to it. It's one of the most original, amazing monsters ever. Uh, and I think that creature, the Black Lagoon, are very similar in some ways in how they're horrible, beautiful. They just have this this look to them that uh, is somewhat uh, uncanny valley and somewhat creepy sexual. It's really interesting uh, to look at those two. They're, they're both sleek and aerodynamic in their own way and creepy as hell. And I think the body horror just really gets to people. And child's play, uh, most people are afraid of dolls. And I think the Chucky <laughs> thing has just always been, uh, once that movie came out, once child play came out in the mid-80s, uh, that was never going to go away. <laughs> that just that really freaked people out. Because that also came around like toward the like the like the the peak of what was that like Teddy Ruxpin and a couple of those other yeah like those kid dolls that were really really big at that time. So yeah yeah about Jaws. What I what I am always fascinated about is part of the reason why that movie has i mean and granted i think the storytelling is beautiful and i love it and i love the music and i think spielberg just hit a home run in the way that he told the film but part of the reason why that movie is so even today like so terrifying is what we don't see and so what i love about that is one of the the film's biggest like failures actually has become the reason why that movie is so like revered and loved today oh yeah i think that spielberg uh, in some ways, he learned valuable lessons to, to make himself become uh, an expert, one of the great filmmakers, understanding film language so much because of having such a weird trial and tribulation that happened in Jaws. There's also a, a message that he forgot several times in his career and just went for the big, big <laughs> spectacle. But, uh, but it was really, really smart of him 
I wonder how others would have worked on it. I mean, there's so much style to how you don't see things. Uh, the three the three barrels is a huge example. Mm. Uh, mm. Just seeing a dorsal fin while a kid is playing on the beach, you know, with a sandcastle. Uh, one of my favorites is the elongated chase sequence. <coughs> excuse me, uh, with the two guys with the roast on the pier. And right, they're both whistling, right. do, 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 making this nice little whistle. And then everything creaks and they stop whistling. And then they start whistling again, but they're moving their bodies. Uh, there's just this wonderful uh, ballet going on while they're up on the, on this thing. And all it is is a collapsible pier, right? And just gets pulled away. And, and one guy gets sucked out there and he's floating around. And the other guy goes, don't look back, just keep swimming. It's don't look just, back. <laughs> yeah. It's just so clever. I mean, it could have been a very quick sequence, but instead the, 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 const, the understanding of timing is what's so great about Jaws, especially the first kill. Uh, I remember seeing it in the theater mm-hmm. and uh, it, I mean, it's like candy to a kid, maybe too intense for younger audiences. Who is not going to go see a movie that says that? <laughs> so I was scared from the very beginning. We just heard there's a shark and it eats people. And oh, watch out for when he pulls the tooth out of the side of a, of a, a, a down ship. You don't want to know what's in there. And I'm like, wow, they're telling me all this crazy stuff. So in the very beginning, it starts underwater. You hear the sound of uh, marine life going blue, 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 blue. And the music doesn't even start yet. We don't have that terrible music yet, but the word Jaws comes up. And we're the point of view of the shark. We're floating around. It's like Michael Myers in Halloween. You know, and uh, the first thing that happens is a piece of, uh, of coral or something, uh, uh, some seaweed hits the camera. And I go, Whoa! I jumped because I was already so tense waiting for the shark to appear out of nowhere, not realizing yet that I'm, I'm the shark in that, in that opening moment. Uh, but that whole thing of it starting underwater and then going to, we, he doesn't set anything up. We start with a cut mid music, people playing harmonicas, drinking beer, nighttime on a beach, bunch of kids just playing around. There's all this sound. There's all this commotion happening. Two people fall in love and they start moving away from the music and we hear the music fading. And all we hear is the ocean and your heart rate starts to go right there. And the whole thing is how long it takes for that shark to bite her the first time. We know she's going to get bit. We're watching the guy too drunk to go out and swim with her and he falls asleep on the, we're all these terrible dread moments. That's what I I love. Dread in horror films. It's little stingers that get you more and more nervous. It gets your imagination going. Nothing's happening. And then finally she gets bit. And she's just, is this happening? She has this look in her face, like, is this happening? And then she's like, oh, oh, oh. and then she's like praying at one point. All this stuff is happening. And it's just two guys with wires pulling her down, the actress. And it works so damn well. And it's not graphic. It's silhouetted at certain points. You know, it's happening at nighttime. So we're not seeing that big cloud of red blood that, that it becomes apparent later on in the film. It's just so, the first Half hour of that movie is absolute perfection. That's a perfect horror film. Just like the like the non-diegetic sound. I mean, all you're getting is just the sound like the buoys and everything in the water. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. just the the real, you know, this and just obviously when you're out there, just like how everything else is silent and everything. And just yeah. this this horror of like, oh yeah, nature's taking you down. And it's just yeah, the 
just to uh, kind of like uh, use your words, yeah, the first half hour is perfection, and that 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 first kill. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't have a soul if that doesn't affect you. I mean, it's yeah. just it's extremely powerful. Yeah. The, the sound design is so great in that movie. What's great about it is the drop off. So there are sequences where there's sound. You're safe around crowds of people. Mm-hmm. And then he moves you away from crowds of people and you feel the sound just go away. It fades to the left way behind you or whatever. That's safety. Safety's back there. You're no longer safe. If you're not hearing other voices, you're no longer safe. When they're out in the ocean, there's that whole rousing music for a while there when it's an adventure film. And then when the, when the boat starts taking in water, there's no music. We're hearing just the sound of the water. Mm-hmm. And they're not showing anything on the horizon. They're alone. And that is uh, it's, it's such a great little trap that uh, that Spielberg put together in that. And, and the sound designer, who I can't remember who it was at this point, but they did such a great job on that. Now, we've obviously been chatting uh, a few minutes. I've got a, a, yeah. a billion questions. That should be your questions because I've been horrible. I've just been keeping talking about the same thing. No, no, thing. This, is, this is great. So, I mean, I, I had questions, but it's all out the window. I don't care. This is this has just been a really great conversation. Um, but just now, I just kind of like would like to talk a little bit about horror films in general. You know, mm-hmm. people have gotten a taste of a little bit your, your voice and everything. But um, when it comes to... Actually, before I start talking about uh, films, one more question about your podcast. Obviously, you've been doing podcasting for a little while. I, mm-hmm. I get an idea as far as why you have an you know insane passion for it. Maybe not insane, <laughs> but you've got a very very That's strong insane. passion for this subject matter. But in the what five six years that you've had Hellbent for Horror, what are mm-hmm. some like the big takeaways that you that you've learned as you know, as a, as a podcast host, what, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the media? You know, what have you learned Mm. about the genre? What are like some of your big takeaways in your experience thus far? Hmm. That's, that's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, continuing to persevere, uh, people ask a lot, like what, what, what is it like to do a podcast? What should I do if I'm trying to get into a podcast? And it's like, Podcasts are great because, as I mentioned before, I, I love when people just feel compelled to create, and podcasting is a way to definitely create. Sometimes you just need to get your voice out there, out, out from being inside of you. And I wasn't sure if I was going to have anybody listening at all, uh, and I'm not sure who I have listening now, but uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where I couldn't worry about pleasing people with that voice. The thing that people are uh, compelled by is my unique take, not what I'm talking about. Like you mentioned the It episode. I thought, oh man, the Stephen King It episode, that's going to be the one that puts me on the moon because I'm talking about It. It's a huge hit and everything. No, nobody, I did not have this huge jump over that. I had the people who liked my voice uh, or, and when I talk about voice, it's not the tone it's uh how what how i speak about things what the 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 production is like what uh how i put together a story those are the things that got people interested they liked the campfire kind of feel to it i guess uh but it wasn't the sensation of i need to have these great guests all of this stuff uh chasing numbers is a dead man's sport uh 
uh, chasing your passion, finding people who are just like you and talking to them. That's the fun of it all. This is an extension of why I tend to go to cons at this point, conventions. Uh, I want to talk. I want to get into conversations. And I think I mentioned that as one of my tags for my show, which is I, I, I really want to have conversations with people. I want to start conversations. I got into this because I hadn't been talking about anything I was passionate about for almost a decade while I was doing heavy-duty day job work uh, as a recruiter in, in software in Silicon Valley for startups. Nobody that I worked with was into what I was into. But I spent all of this voice, all of my compelling ways of talking, all my sense of debate was used for zeros and ones to get someone else's passion heard because they were not articulate. And so uh, I used the instrument for someone else. And then it was just, I need to talk. And so uh, the way that I could do it without, you know, I, I can't make a movie. I don't have you know, the money to do that. I'm not young. Uh, this is not going to happen for me. I can't sing. So what is it that I want to do? And I was like, my voice is something and uh, podcasting is a reasonably cheap way to go down the highway to hell. And uh, it's also one of those things where it's the Wild West. You can be on for 10 minutes. Or you can be on for 10 hours. You can do it how, whatever you want. Although I will say that having uh, and I'm, I'm the worst person to say this at this moment because I'm terribly not keeping up with the schedule. Uh, it's good to have a schedule uh, uh, because people love your shit and you find out when you don't keep a schedule like, well, where is it? You know, I don't worry so much about people disappearing uh, as much as maybe I should. Uh, but I do find that I get uh, my concerned listeners getting in touch with me going. So when's the next episode? You know, I'm really I'm really excited by what you do. That is uh, one of the great things is being able to connect with people in that fashion to have people go, I'm really excited by what you talk about. And it was a lesson that I learned in conventions too, because I started being a panelist at conventions and I'd be asked to do things. And a lot of conventions are not well-organized machines at all. They just throw shit at you. So I was in a convention in another state and I look and I'm like not on any of the horror panels, but I'm on panels about tattoos. I'm on panels about hard science. I'm like, holy fuck, this is a nightmare. And I survive all of them because I just want to talk to people. And I found a way to, to still have connection with people instead of being super self-conscious about what I knew and what I didn't know. And what I found out at the end is I had people coming up and buying books off of me and auto getting autographs on them. And I would say, they'd say, you were really good on that panel. And I'd say, yeah, I, I did the best I could. I, I, I don't know shit about that. And they went, you know, we don't follow people by the, the panel name. We follow the panelists. And that was one of the things that I learned is that as a voice, if you are you, People follow that. You may not have throngs. You may not have 10 million listeners, but the people who are following you are following you for the right reasons, and they're following you with passion. And so I found that all my worries about, man, I have to do a good panel. I have to, have, I have to be on the right thing where I'm going to really sing and stuff. No, I get to be me, uh, self-deprecating and funny and talk about this stuff with a level of passion. And people followed me for the rest of that weekend. And I found that that happened pot, uh, uh, panel after panel at convention after convention. Uh, and so uh, for podcasting, the thing that I've learned is I can't try to be something I'm not. 
And there are two different essay Bradleys for the show. There's the editorialist who does essays. Uh, that is basically uh, four or five movies and a theme. Uh, and then there's the guy who does interviews. And uh, the interviews happen because I had so many people who wanted to talk to me that were also talented. And it didn't seem fair <laughs> to be only going on other people's shows. And there was a way to get to, to have really exciting conversations by having guests. So the first year, I don't think I had any guests whatsoever. I just killed myself doing two uh, episodes that was purely editorializing uh, that was somewhere between seven and 10,000 words per episode or more. Uh, and, and that was a lot of writing and a lot of performing and then coming in with uh, interviews. I still love the, the thing that people most adore that I think uh, I hear the most for. Uh, the, the old time fans are the ones that hear the essays. They're the ones that are like, yeah, that's where you're, you, you put together a story and it's fun to listen to. And, and that's where your, your passion really comes uh, to the forefront. Uh, so I'm, I'm always thinking about how I can do that uh, a little bit easier. <laughs> it's not easy to do. I'm a one man show basically. So all of the stuff gets done by me. Um, but I think that's, that's one of the things. And I also have to learn to be a little bit easier in myself. I've made it so much harder. Uh, now I do video as well as audio. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I, I add music, all these things where it's really not that necessary. People will listen no matter what, but I'm now at this point where that feels right. You know, that feels cinematic for lack of a better term, whatever it is, it feels like it's just a little bit more me and, uh, and it feels better than than not putting stuff in like that. Uh, my introduction to you were those interviews. And, you know, like I said, I've had the opportunity to go back and listen to the more essay style. And they're both great. I think you do a great job doing an interview. Like, I, I really like the one that you, uh, shit, I think it was like your most recent or the one almost uh, uh, most recently where you were, you were talking to the the guys from uh, the prop masters. Yeah. yeah prop the masters. Yeah. 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 That was great. And, you know, without spoiling anything, there's a, there's a discussion as far as like, what's the, the Holy grail of movie props. And I'm kind of <laughs> right. curious just to know, just without any type of spoiling for horror films, what do you think is your own personal Holy grail? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that thing personal changes it a little bit. I mean, I, I would think of the Holy grail, of Holy grails because I, love the original Frankenstein would be the operating table. You know, mm. that, that whole thing, that oh, call. would be that thing uh, where I'd be like, holy cow, uh, having that would feel like it has power. And I have a friend, uh, John Kitley has a show called discover the horror that he does with a few other friends of mine. Uh, he's one of the guys that I consider the Algonquin round table of horror guys, <laughs> really knowledgeable. And we just sit around at conventions and stay up till three o'clock in the morning talking this stuff. And he has a, a, a reliquarian uh, aspect to him uh, where he has all these uh, 
these things like he has the tingler from uh william castle's the tingler (laughs) and it's like holy shit when i saw that that to me was like i need to touch that i need to touch that so these things have a certain energy to them because of nostalgia because they've they they mean something they're totems of these stories Uh, and so the frankenstein monster is probably the most relatable to me and i think anybody who's ever felt like an outcast kind of has a, a connection with the frankenstein monster so that table would be the ultimate for anybody. I think the, uh, the 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 ultimate thing of horror would be that first Universal film, or it's the second Universal film actually. Dracula was first, um, but the uh, Frankenstein monster being seen for the first time uh, in Universal Studios history. That table uh, is like the beginning of everything. Uh, but if we're talking my own shit, uh, the original face hugger from Alien would be one of those. <laughs> Yeah, if I could get that, like the one that they they had the the uh, uh, the cat, not the cat gut, but the goat guts and stuff in it, <laughs> the, the hogus put in there to make it look like uh, you know they they put like seafood and stuff in mm-hmm. uh, for the close up, uh, and uh, that one uh, I would say a little bit more uh, arcane is uh, the from the abominable Doctor Fibes. Dr. Fives had these curses that were on scrolls and amulets. There's the blood curse and there's this weird necklace amulet that you would wear. And and there was all this weird uh, stuff written on this scroll. And as a kid, I was like, oh, those scrolls are freaking awesome. I would love this great (laughs) set decoration. So I'd love that. Uh, But there's also uh, uh, one of my favorite horror movies of all time is John Carpenter's The Fog. So if I could get a piece of the Elizabeth Dane, the piece of oh. driftwood that the kid finds that yeah. says six must die on it. Uh, I would, that would be the thing I'd love to especially find the one that was an actual, the camera used one because they had holes bored in it with hoses so that water would start to pour out of the, the driftwood uh, at one point. And uh, that's just such a cool little thing. So it's something that someone who's a fan of the movie would know immediately. Uh, and I mean, there's so many. I mean, the, I have the Phantasm Ball from the original Phantasm. That's I, 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 not the one. It's just a replica. But to me, that's one of those things that was so – that movie was so important to me as a kid uh, that having that thing, which is so unique in horror – the only thing that's close to that is another thing that would be a collectible, which is the uh, box from Hellraiser. Hellraiser, uh, yeah. Th- yeah. Those two things right there are really iconic and separate from pretty much anything else that you will see. Uh, most of the vampire stuff, like uh, if you were to get something from the Hammer movies, the crucifixes, they're kind of interchangeable with other crucifixes. Uh, there are some movies – uh, like Dark Water, there's an emblem that you can, that is really cool, but not too many people are going to know that one. Uh, but I think the uh, the ball from Phantasm and the the box from Hellraiser are two things that are thoroughly unique in horror. They were created by ingenious thought, mm-hmm. and they're 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 some they're and they're somewhat. Uh, they tell the story of the story itself, even though they're so weird. I mean, the idea of the the box uh, in Hellraiser in a story that's all about how temptation will lead you to the road of ruin. Uh, You have the idea of a Chinese puzzle box. I must figure out the puzzle. And before you know it, the puzzle gets you uh, is is a really great idea. Uh, So I I love that kind of thing. Uh, And those those would be the ones that I think uh, are the, the holy grails for me. How about yourself? What's yours? 
Boy, um, I like asking the questions as far as answering them. It's, you know, I always feel like I'm on the spot. Um, it, it's not necessarily like a, a traditional totem in that sense, but what I wouldn't give to have the the clown from uh, from Poltergeist. I mean, that. Oh, yeah, that that terrified me, you know, uh, just for, mm-hmm. for context. When that movie would have came out, you know, I would have seen that way too young. I mean, for my generation, a poltergeist was, was huge. I mean, it wasn't necessarily my my first kiss, but because you know I, I had the the safety of my parents uh, when I when I saw that film. But yeah, that that clown, I I still am terrified by that clown even today. And what I wouldn't give to have to have that um another totem obviously if i had the room for it bruce you know bruce the shark yeah, you know that's Jaws, a great one I mean, that would that'd be great yeah i have a friend in new jersey who has spent his whole life getting props from jaws and he's gone out of his way to meet richard dreyfus to have him sign things he's got like some of the barrels and it's just <laughs> crazy i go to his place and i'm like i cannot believe that you have these things this is incredible mm-hmm. and insane yeah. Now, with the the final few minutes that I've got you, you know, we have to settle some debates, not and, you know, leave your own personal like opinions aside, but settle that debate. What is the greatest horror film ever made? Hmm. Boy, I don't know how you set away uh, how you can say favorite or greatest. Yeah. Uh, Like, I can't say what my favorite is. I can say the top three and it changes all the time. But if I was to say the greatest, like the one that may have the most impact in the modern era, um, and it may not seem that way until you start thinking about all the different types of movies that came out of that, that, that school, might be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. And if not that, it might be Night of the Living Dead. Because Night of the Living Dead gives us an entire zombie metaphor that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, zombies before that were uh, slaves on a plantation right. who were, were held in some kind of sway. It was not a metaphor for anything other than that. And George Romero takes the idea of the ghoul, puts the, the, the concept of the zombie with it, and gives us a doomsday idea. So all, uh, so much of dystopian fiction comes from that idea. And that comes from a, a book uh, by Richard Matheson, uh, Last Man on Earth, I believe was the name, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so, d- you know, um, that is hugely impactful. Uh, but as soon as you say that, then you think about The Exorcist, which transcended uh, horror audiences and uh, brought in true social uh, uh, turmoil and debate into uh, the cinema. Because at the time that that movie's being made, the Catholic Church is going through all sorts of scandals and all sorts of trouble. Uh, Family is falling apart. Uh, Social institutions are in the middle of uh, Vietnam. All this stuff is where the secular world uh, is kind of stumbling upon and beyond what's happening in the religious world. And it's a very strange film if you look at it. I mean, it's like the heroes are two priests. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like a Western in some ways. They just come into town. But um, yeah, it's so hard because the greatest is such a, uh, such a thing. So if I'm looking at great, it's social impact and how well does it hold up? Many of the old horror movies don't hold up for new generations. Like The Exorcist, is great, but in a secular world where there isn't as much risk around religion, we may be coming back to a time 
where the exodus is going to matter more because the religious uh, institutions are declaring war in some ways on mm-hmm. on uh, on the secular world. Uh, it may become something again where there's this constant hard edge debate. But for a while there, I think people were like, you know, it's just a monster. You know, the de- the devil's just a construct. Uh, so you know, that's that's interesting. But I don't know. That's another super original movie. I mean, there was nothing quite like the Exorcist before it. And there's a million pretenders to the throne after it, but they all follow the same, they follow the same template. The Exodus was so strong in how it created its own storyline that every fucking movie that does possession goes down the same path. It all ends up as bed or chair or barn porn. The movie is huge. And monstrous, and the, the 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 predatory nature of the demon is what's scary. And then the last half of the movie is basically, oh, you have possession. We're just going to get the doctors in here to take a look at. Oh, they're priests, but the doctors are going to come in and they're going to cure you. And the whole movie gets to the size of a bed, and just a bunch of people yelling around a bed and stuff flying. Nobody's been able to break that code since 1973. Yeah, you know, it's been this same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, that is the sign of a powerful visual story. Um, so, yeah, but I think Texas Chainsaw is just so primal and so insane. Like if I'm talking about a movie that is truly original, unsettling, like nothing else, freaky, almost impossible to understand in some ways mm-hmm. that is that movie that's a theater of cruelty our toes theater of cruelty done as a, as a horror film uh it is an assault visually uh thematically uh the sound design is insane the the whole thing is comedic at some points and horrific in another it's partially fairy tale it's partially slaughterhouse it gives you uh, it lives on an idea of how just the name freaks you out before you even see the movie texas chainsaw massacre three things nobody really likes you know, <laughs> nobody wants to go to texas nobody wants chainsaws and a massacre jesus christ put those three things together i don't know if there's been a better name for a movie three on a meat hook but nobody nobody saw that one but uh <laughs> that's you get exactly what you're going for if you see three on a meat hook but uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everything about it, it's, it's that moment that we, we think is new now. But the reality is Deliverance and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre saw the difference, the separation between the two Americas. And they made them both horror movies. And they made it Country Mouse, City Mouse. But it's really not that far from uh, the idea of education versus no education, uh, belief in old values versus modernity. You know, all of that stuff is happening right in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's that moment right there. Before that, you know, before that and Deliverance, they, they both those movies pretty much created the idea of uh, – what do they call it? Hillbilly porn? Or something. Mm-hmm. I, there's, a, there's a term for it. Uh, backwood exploitation. The whole idea of like the Macon County line, the South, all of our fears about that stuff. Well, what they did is they, they capitalized on everything that was happening in the South during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, and then Kent State, the, the massacre of kids uh, at the college. All of that stuff is in the air. 
And Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes up with this crazy fairy tale about that. And uh, boom, you know, uh, I, I think we've uh, movies have gone down that path since. It's it's like this template that was created between that and The Exorcist. Those are probably the two most original templates. And then once you say that, then you go back to Psycho, right? Because Psycho sits there and comes up with that's the first time that we start talking about middle America being dangerous. You know, the suburbs are now deadly. You know, and that comes from coming back from World War II. After World War II, all the maniacs start moving to suburbia. You know, we had a bunch of people come back twisted. <laughs> and uh, that's when we start having serial killers, Ed Gein and all that stuff. I mean, there were the occasional guys or H.H. H. Holmes and Albert Fish and stuff like that that were early serial killers. But there weren't that many. But after World War II, we have this whole thing of, uh, and I, I, I can't help but think that war changes us in ways we don't know. And I think uh, when people came back, there was a hardness that came into the world, even though we were trying to say we relaxed and we enjoyed ourselves and we were going to listen to Dean Martin and everybody forever and the Brat Pack is for every, or the Rat Pack is for everybody. And all of that wonderful stuff, it was almost forced. We are going to have fucking fun now. Yeah. And that whole idea of suburbia and it started to fall apart really quick. And so Ed Gein was like, uh, the beginning of that, something so horrifying, not a guy shooting people, a guy eating people, wearing people, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the heartland of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, that's not New York City. That's not Chicago. That's Wisconsin, man. And so uh, Psycho hits on that. But I don't consider that the, the I mean, it's such a great beginning seed, but that's not the one. As far if we're talking about modern horror films, the first thing that's really a modern horror film is Night of the Living Dead. Because it's the one that doesn't say everything's okay at the end. Everything up to that, including Psycho. Psycho is the perfect horror movie until the last 10 minutes. <laughs> when Simon Oakland is sitting there going, Well, the reason that all of this happened is because right. oh, his mom and his, you know, then it's no longer that, that it could be the monster next door to you at any given moment. No, it's that guy, that one guy who had problems with his mom. And he threw a toaster or a fan in there. That's the reason. You know, we don't have anything to worry about, Mr. and Mrs. America. Go home and be happy after Psycho. It's just a thrill. And uh, George Romero didn't do that. George Romero ended the world. You know, he just didn't show it. Uh, he just let it end with this this gut punch. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's not a great answer because I gave you three movies that I think are the greatest. No, no, but and, that's and what, what's great, I think, was it three or four? But I mean, what what you did do is you, you nailed the ones that people go into, right? I mean, you go into, I mean, you you go into, um, you know, a zombie uh, trope. You go into a slasher film. You go into obviously. Um, really to kind of like modern modern term i mean psycho might be like the og like elevated horror film in that sense where you just have like this long drawn out story about protagonist and you know it's you know it's, it's i mean the way they market it it's gonna be a horror film but the, the first 45 mm -hmm. minutes there's really nothing that yeah. is really showing you that it's going to be a horror film at all. Yeah. And I and guess then when maybe, it hits, holy shit. <laughs> and when it hits, holy shit. Yeah. And maybe this might be a segue and uh, I say, if you've got just a couple more minutes, sure, just for, good. okay, perfect. Uh, what are your thoughts just even because over the past 10 years, 
we've we've been hit over the the head with like a sledgehammer over this terminology of elevated horror and you know the people that are big in big horror fans some people are okay with it some people completely shudder at that that terminology yeah. but even so-called experts you, you you do see this fundamental shift where there's some really really great stories being told that the um, literary experts, critics, they all thoroughly enjoy it. And there's almost kind of like a 50-50 like split between audience members. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, you're hitting on something that's uh, kind of one of my sticking points. I actually do oh, no, a one-man <laughs> show. No, no, no. I mean, it's a one-man show that I do called My Horror Manifesto, where I basically talk about this whole idea of how hard does not deserve your shame that the, mm. the title of horror has never needed to have a, a, a separate name put to it. And that the idea of those labels is really uh, a velvet rope. It's gatekeepers of different types. It's uh, uh, different groups coming in. And it's all about the shame. And it's really not about the movies themselves. I think it's more about the, the fans. <laughs> they don't want to be associated with me. Yeah, you know, they don't want to look at that and they go, well, I'm not one of those people. I don't like the idea of horror. It's 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 uh, looking at the basis, most uh, lowest con- common denominator emotions. It's stupid. It's knuckle dragging. You know, it, it, it's it's that old thinking again, this old paradigm of, well, that's shameful to think about those things, even though. There have always been what people are considering elevated horror. There's been these films all the time. All you have to do is look back. You go all the way back to the silent films. There were esoteric horror films at that point. There were always movies that had the slow burn to them. All these terms that are being used are just the idea of I need to own this. It's my time, not your time. I don't like Freddy. I don't like Jason. Fuck that noise. I'm going to have my own type of horror. And what bothers me is it's usually the critics who start that. You know, it's not the fans. You know, so there was a guy in The Guardian. Uh, I'm forgetting his name now. He's in my book. I wrote about him. Uh, but he came up with post-horror, which was before elevated horror. Elevated horror is now, okay, I guess post-horror was kind of silly. So we'll call it elevated horror. Because post-horror was like, you're telling me everything that it's not, but you're not telling me what it is. You know, what? what is it? It's post-horror. What the fuck is that? But it's the idea of, you know, this has been done since the beginning of horror. Like I mentioned, The Exorcist was up for Best Picture. Jaws is up for Best Picture. Uh, Roger Ebert called Jaws an adventure film. Uh, and uh, William Friedkin himself said that The Exorcist wasn't a horror movie when it was up for Best Picture. That's because there is a stigma against horror. And so what always happens down to uh, Silence of the Lambs and other films that were horror films when they first came out, Misery, these were horror films when they first came out. Once the statue got attached to them, once they were up for nominations, there was this whole whitewashing that happens. Start calling them psychological thrillers, urban thrillers, whatever they decide to call it. They're coming up with something else. And what this is, is uh, stealing the poetry of horror. There is a poetry that makes people so affected by what's going on. The beauty of the, the uh, allegory and the metaphor, it doesn't exist in other types. It exists in horror films. You're able to talk about the ugliness in a beautiful fashion. These movies worked so hard to beat the stigma, to actually make it to where they were up for best picture because they were so good. No one could even deny them. And then they start calling them thrillers. 
And the thing is, is that every time that you change the name, the title, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If, uh, if you change the genre every time there's an exceptional horror film, then there are never any exceptional horror films. And it just is a replay of the stigma. You want to keep certain horror films in the dumps. And you want to elevate things by calling them elevated horror, but they're the same thing. And whenever you talk to people about elevated horror, they'll bring back up movies like Don't Look Now. Movies that are 40, 50 years fucking old, but they're elevated horror, but now elevated horror is new. No, it's not. Horror is horror, but horror is subjective. Horror does not mean that it's going to affect everybody the same way. There is a horror film for everybody. But at the same point, that doesn't mean that just because you find this thing a horror film that the other ones are not. We need to understand that it is a universal thing. We are talking – horror is not a social aspect. Uh, what, uh, let's put it this way. Why does horror endure? It's the second oldest story ever told. Well, horror endures because we need it. It's not a social need. It's not a cultural need. It is a human need. We need to speak to the darkness inside of us in a safe way. We need to understand that darkness is human, that it is not evil. Evil doesn't necessarily exist in that fashion. There are not bad thoughts. There are not bad emotions. There are bad actions that come from those things. Being scared is not necessarily bad. Uh, Seeing horrible things is not necessarily bad. It's what you do with that. But the thing is, everybody needs that release. Everybody needs what I had when I was a kid, when I felt like the whole world was against me and I saw a scary movie that made me go, wow, I can survive terrible things. I have no control over what's happening with the rest of the world, but I have some control over the stories I'm able to hear. And the horror film uh, is something that allows us a constant commentary about what we're living through. We get to see the visceral and the dirty in an honest fashion. I say that if you really want to know what pissed people off in any generation, watch the horror movies of that time. Not the ones that were in the big marquees. Go see the Grindhouse movies. Go see the drive-in movies. Go see the ones that were made for 30 bucks. Because those are the exploitation films. They need to know what was a knife in the back to people at that point. You will see what the phobias and the anxieties were. And you also get to see all of our sins in horror movies. When you don't see any black people, you don't see any Asian people, you don't see any women, that is guaranteed telling you what our problems were at that time. We're now finally getting representation and we're getting new stories because of it. We're finding out new Americas that we didn't get told when we were learning these films as a child. But that's the thing. Horror has a value. Just because our lives are messy, don't blame the mop and the broom for cleaning it up. Real quick, obviously, I you know I need to bring up your book, and I know we're (laughs) we're we're running out. But for those that are gonna you know grab your book, what what are they gonna get out of it? It will cure your lumbago. No, it's uh, (laughs) uh, the, the name of the book is Screaming for Pleasure: How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. And it's a love letter to all things that go bump in the night, really. It's uh, how horror not only reinvents itself to reflect each generation's anxieties, kind of what I was just talking about now, but can also be healing as well as thrilling. When I talk about that healing thing uh, in the book, the book is somewhat uh, uh, talking about horror on a very general broad spectrum, what I see of it. uh, But it's also a little bit of a personal journey, uh, things that have happened to me. Uh, but also to people that I know, uh, things that I think horror uh, can do for folks. 
uh, like what I talk about in Happy and Healthy is yeah, it's not going to cure you know scabies or anything like that. But what it does do is <laughs> it takes scurvy. care of the little things. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it takes care of the little things, the little things that mean a lot. It's the emotional things. It's the Jungian shadow. You know, Jung talks about how. Uh, if you you can ignore that shadow, that dark, spoiled brat inside of you, but you do that at your own peril. Uh, it can hurt you. Uh, it will pop up. That brat's going to get hurt. You're either going to do it in your own fashion. Or it's going to find its way out. And that's when you get divorced, you embezzle money or whatever it might be. Uh, but horror allows us to uh, take a look at that dark side of ourselves and understand it's okay, that it's human. Uh, it allows us to have a sense of humor. There's a sense of play to horror. You can't take this shit that seriously. You find your own tribe. You find people who are just like you, who are passionate. You find a passion that you may not have. A lot of people don't have a lot of passion as they get older. They forget to have a sense of play. They do that basically as a spectator and nothing more. You can find a different way to do that. Uh, and uh, you can uh, find a way to just accept certain parts of yourself. So if you find uh, a way to still have a sense of play in your life. You find your tribe and you have a community because of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, you feel good about who you are. You can accept the dark parts as much as you can start accept the light. That seems pretty fucking healthy to me. That seems like a pretty good life. So that's the kind of thing I talk about in there. I love it. Uh, Halloween, you know, whether you're listening to it right now or you're listening to it 10 years from now, Halloween is always right around the corner. And so <laughs> my question is for, I mean, we all know about the, the staples, right? Everybody should watch Halloween around Halloween or trick or treat right. around Halloween or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on your podcast, you talk about a lot of good movies that maybe you haven't thought about. What should everybody be watching and why is it Lady in White? <laughs> well, Lady in White's fantastic. First, I, that is, I, I have to talk to the, the director. I'm actually Facebook friends with him. Uh, Are you he's, really? he's living in, yeah, but he's living in Italy now. Uh, but I, I want to talk to him about that movie because I think Roger Ebert got it right on that one, which is that it is so clumsily perfect. Mm -hmm. In other words, it is so many different movies all kind of falling over each other. There's this slice of life uh, coming of age story. There's this ghost story. There's this look at the darkness of our town, basically a Horton Wilder's our town done dark. Uh, there's uh, uh, like a serial killer kind of aspect to it. There's uh, this father son bond. Uh, there are all these different movies that are together and it's filled with weird comedy. There's like slapstick comedy at certain points. And then there's moments that feel so true in that film. It is idiosyncratic. It is weirdly beautiful. It is pure passion uh, from a director who was just trying to hit it out of the park. Whatever it was that was in his heart, he needed to get it out in that one movie. He never knew if he'd do another, I guess. And so you have great acting in that. Uh, you have these weird uh, set pieces. Uh, the whole thing in the closet with the kid being strangled is amazing. Uh, the, the way that the narration works inside of that film, normally narration drives me crazy. It's that you didn't write the story well enough, but that is part that is a story or a character itself. The way that he talks about his narration. Why didn't I tell her that I loved her when he thinks he's dying? <laughs> All this crazy children's stuff that's happening in that movie. And it feels epic in its own way. It feel, uh, when I saw that movie, it felt like it could have been made in the 50s. It felt like it could have been made in the 2000s. It felt strangely timeless. 
And yet it's terribly dated, right? I mean, it, uh, it talks about things that probably don't happen anymore, like elementary school uh, Halloween parties, you know, uh, uh, with the teacher, you know, playing music and stuff. And yet that moment with the five and dime stores, with the baby alligators in the window and stuff, none of that exists anymore. And yet you can feel that. You can feel that even if you never had that in your life and you wish you had that. It's such an amazing film. It's a ghost story. It's not too scary for kids, uh, but it has a viciousness to it. There, uh, when it does decide that it's going to go dark, it goes very dark. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's an assassination in there. There's uh, the the a child definitely in peril, and uh, it's it, it's it's really an amazing film. So I'm glad to talk about Lady in White at any given point. I would say another one that's really good right now. I'm trying to think of newer ones because I have a list, but a lot of those are older now. And there's been some really good horror movies of recent. The Witch in the Window, super low budget film. Uh, the acting at times is a little bit, but it is such a good story. And I'll tell you nothing more about it except that it's just two a uh, father and son who are uh, uh, a little bit uh, at odds with each other over divorce. They're trying to help fix a house that they're trying to roll over, and they have an unexpected visitor. And the movie is just one of those that blew me away when I saw it. Uh, there's another one called Pontypool, which I really like. And Pontypool is kind of like uh, talk radio mixed with a zombie film. Uh, the, the idea is the, the poisonous thought taking over and mm. possessing people. It's a thoroughly unique and original idea on the zombie concept. And I thought it was really, really good. The Descent, which I think a lot of people have no, seen yeah. now, but The Descent is a, a, just an incredible low-budget horror film. And if people haven't seen it, I, I give it high marks. Uh, there's, um, trying to think, uh, I would say that The Black Phone is a new horror film that's really, really good mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it, that I think is going to stand the test of time for the same reasons as Lady in White, which is that you have a, that movie could hold up with like the 400 blows or uh, uh, Goodbye Children uh, by uh, Louis Boonwell. Uh, these movies where you're talking about the horrors of childhood. It's like The Devil's Backbone, which is another one which I would say is one that people should see. Uh, The idea that it really, it talks not only about an almost supernatural monster that is dangerous for children, but there's also the idea of just being a child. It captures 1978 very well, but also just the brutality of children in a way that Usually it's just Stephen King's territory. And so uh, I give uh, Black Phone uh, high marks for that. Um, what other low budget? Uh, there's been some really, really, really good uh, horror movies of recent. And I'm drawing a blank on all of them <laughs> at this point. Just in the last year, there's been some really good ones. I would say it's not going to be fun for everybody, but I would say Antlers. Antlers is right. what I would call blue-collar horror. There aren't that many horror movies that deal with living in an area where the world's coming to an end. Uh, economy is down. Everything's falling apart. And uh, the ones that are like that are like Salem's Lot, Jerusalem's mm-hmm. Lot, the, the mm-hmm. story itself. Um my Bloody Valentine is a blue-collar horror, right. you know, dealing in the coal mines. Uh, so stories like that aren't seen that much. So you're talking 
to groups that are underrepresented. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's really a, a good story. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had my list in front of me. But of course, I, I cockily thought that I'd be able to pull them up just like that. But there are several films that are on Amazon that you can buy. Uh, Shutter, Tubi. Uh, Tubi, in particular, if you can handle commercials every so often, they have a fantastic line of like films from the 70s mm-hmm. that don't get seen very often that are really, really good. Shutter's had some some really good ones that have come out. Uh, but I'm trying to think of ones that are just like, what the fuck? They just no. hit you in the side of the head. Satan Sadists mm-hmm. is really good. Satan Slaves. That's the one, not mm-hmm. Satan Sadists. Satan Slaves. It's uh, Taiwanese. It's kind of uh, their version of Evil Dead, and it is unhinged. Yeah. It is wonderfully unhinged. I know we're out of time, but I just had to know just what your thoughts were, just because it was a movie that that when I saw, I I, I didn't know what to expect, but it was one of those films that kind of like lingered for me. It's just a very, very low budget movie. What did you think of The Beach House? Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Is The Beach House the one where there's like the microbe in the air? Yeah, the, the microbes okay. in the air. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. Uh, I, I like that. It reminded me of the uh, the Richard Stanley Color Out of Space. Right. I yeah. like both mm-hmm. of those movies a lot because everyone's going. If the world was coming to an end, if there was this this thing that was taking over, there's a great movie called The Signal. By the way, you have to look for the right one though. The Signal, the 2007 Signal. It's like three different stories together. But it's another one where there's a transmission on on television and everybody that sees that transmission starts to kill the person next to them. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize that they're doing it. It's just like a, there's a moment where a guy is driving and he's been wounded by someone else and he's driving with a girl next to him. And he just looks over to, at her and they're driving to escape. He just starts punching her. Mm. And he's not doing it with any passion. He's just punching her. There's another one called the the Screwfly Solution, which was actually a Masters of Horror short film, an hour long, done by Joe Dante. It's magnificent, which is just about That's my hey, dude right world, there. I love yeah, some Joe Dante. The world wants to, yeah, I love Joe, Joe Dante. That's one of the movies that I wish I talked more about in my book. Uh, was The Howling, which was uh, I think um, they're they're two different movies, Howling and American Werewolf. But I love what he did with The Howling, and I love mm-hmm. his sense of humor about things, and I love how his early films are. He's the guy who brought Chuck Jones cartoons into the real world, mm-hmm. and that's fucking terrifying. It's not, you know, if you were to see an animated head go big, that's fucking terrifying. And, mm-hmm. and he knew that, and he put that in there. But um, uh, Screwfly Solution and The Beach House, all of these movies are about a monster that it doesn't even know it's malevolent. It's just existing. It's going all the way back to Lovecraft. It's going all the way right. back to the blob, you know, mm-hmm. the blob basically, which is, it's just hungry. It doesn't care if you're a human. It doesn't matter what, it's just eating. Mm-hmm. And so the microbes are doing what they're doing and we don't know we're slowly going insane. We're, our oxygen is changing. How we're taking in food is changing. We have no clue. And that is absolutely terrifying to me. And I think that those movies were great because they played in that sandbox. And that's such a existential horror as opposed to a monster who means you trouble. 
it's kind of like Bruce and Jaws. He's just hungry. He's just territorial. <laughs> he's just hungry. Yeah, he's just hungry. But we're we're the problem, you know, by going into the water into his in his territory and being food. So uh, I do. I'm glad that you brought that one up because there's a bunch of house movies that came out. His house, and, which is really good, has one of the best scares I've seen in a long time in that movie. That I rewound it several times and still got chills. And I was like, man, that is perfectly timed. You don't get that very often in, in horror films like Telegraph. Uh, but um, there's another one, the not the beach house, but uh, oh my goodness, it's the one uh, where. There's a there's an identical house across the the lake. Oh oh oh, uh, the one um shit the night house. The night house, that's it. Yeah, which yeah, I liked, yeah. but I wasn't as big on that as I was the beach house. I think the beach house. Yeah, worked I, much I thought better. beach house. You know, it hit me a little bit differently, but I, I think the the night house was just beautiful in the way that yeah. they that they filmed that. It was just it, it looked. The I forget the name of the filmmakers that did that, but they were also related into another movie that I thought was really good, too. But it's escaping me off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I love a lot of what's coming out now. I know that there are a lot of people who have uh, there's a, a movie called Relic, not the one with the uh, with the monster in the woods, which I actually love. That one is great. That came out on on uh, Netflix a while ago and had a great monster in it. But there's another one with uh, three women. The grandmother is dying. Oh, right. And, yeah, I know that. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that we are now talking about different emotions in horror films that hadn't been talked about for a while. They used to be the staple uh, in things that were done by Edgar Allan Poe, you know, mm-hmm. loss, grief, uh, cowardice, suffering. We used to have that in horror all the time. And uh, now it's coming back and people are like, well, everything has to be, you know, can't we just have people killing each other? <laughs> yes, we can. That's very well represented. OK, it's not like that's gone away. Uh, but uh, how about how about something where we're talking about the, the grief of watching someone that you love turn into something that's different? I mean, Cronenberg uh, did a fantastic job with the, his remake of The Fly about mm-hmm. that. I mean, if you get down to it, Jeff Goldblum has cancer. You know, he's got a cancer in that movie and it's turning him into something. And the person that he loves is not going to know him in a little bit of time. You know, yeah. So I think that, you know, I, I love that we're getting into that stuff now. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with what people uh, I have, I have a problem with uh, the concept that people are calling it elevated horror, that it's different or that uh, uh, somehow movies that remind me of uh, uh the more artistic giallo films and foreign films, Spanish films of the seventies uh, that are now called um, uh, they're the Ari Aster films. Uh, having them be called elevated is an insult to all those movies that spent all those decades creating the kind of atmosphere that allowed movies like these new horror films to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like pretending that we're suddenly reinventing the wheel. Is the only thing that in, uh, that bothers me. But I love that we are back to talking about these emotions that are difficult to sometimes digest in movies. And uh, I think that that adds a depth. I think it's also great that, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, I was the weirdo who would go all the way to Philadelphia to buy uh, get rent videotapes that were Asian horror films because block- they weren't they weren't popular. Nobody mm-hmm. was watching it except for the real weirdos. But lo and behold, uh, now 
the underrepresented groups uh, have a huge say in horror. And they're giving us new stories. Uh, women in horror have been doing it for a while. And they're just, they're not reinventing the wheel. They're giving us a perspective that we haven't seen before. I know the perspective that I've seen since the, the 70s. I understand that one well. But tell me, you know, like the new Candyman, that's a different perspective on a story that I know. Why wouldn't I want that? I'm a greedy, greedy guy. I want all the movies. I want all the good horror movies. So I'm loving that uh, Asian horror films are now being watched by lots of people. I think the pandemic helped that, uh, but certainly streaming. Uh, mm. And I think streaming and the pandemic worked hand in hand because the United States wasn't making movies for two years. There was a hiatus. So they were importing stuff that normally would just be watched in the background and people were watching. You get Squid Game, you get all of that stuff happening. People are watching subtitled films. Like I was saying, I went to Philadelphia. I was the weirdo. There were only the weirdo guys like me who watched Asian films because uh, even Italian films, unless they were dubbed, they weren't really being watched because who wants to watch subtitles? You know, and, and now people are watching movies with subtitles. I think we're in a very exciting time for horror. There are a million tributaries to the river and uh, there's something for everybody. Scott, this was an absolute treat. Thank you. I, Thank I know you. we got to get you some food, you know, you got to get some dinner, <laughs> in. but this was awesome. And I, I can't stress enough how, how fun this was for the listeners. How can, how can people uh, engage with you? How can people find you? Sure. Uh, you can find out anything that you really want by uh, going to my website, hellbenforhar.com. Uh, in there, there are uh, links to all the different podcasts, some news items, uh, but there's also a, a link to my book. Uh, it's also the ISBN number on there. So if you are someone who is not a fan of, say, Amazon or any of the big guys, if you want to help out the uh, small businessman, the, the bookseller in your town, Get that ISBN number, copy that down. They will be more than happy to get you the book uh, at your place and you're helping out small businesses. Uh, if you're interested in uh, finding me on the, the socials, I'm Facebook, Hellbent for Horror. Uh, uh, same with Twitter and Instagram, Hellbent for Horror as well for that. I think for Twitter, it's Hellbent Horror. Weirdly enough, Hellbent for Horror was taken and I've never seen it. I can't find it anywhere, but it just wouldn't let <laughs> me do it. So who knows what the hell that was. Uh, but yeah, uh, most of the stuff we'll be able to find uh, just by going to Twitter or uh, Instagram or to the website itself. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, S.A. Bradley. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. And once again, thank you so much to S.A. Bradley or Scott Bradley, I guess, as I can now refer to him. I had an amazing time. Hopefully you did as well. Definitely. Go back and take a look at the show notes because I'm going to reference several of the movies that were discussed in this episode and I'll take you to their IMD page, uh, IMDB page, or maybe provide trailers or something. I don't know. Of course, I'll have links for, for Scott's website as well as where you can find his book and um, his social media uh, channels and everything. And I, I do thank you. I'm very, very appreciative for everybody that has taken the time to listen to this episode. And if you have listened all the way to the end, show this uh, the show a little support by making sure that you are subscribing. You are telling your friends. You're leaving a review. Reviews are incredibly important. And definitely check out my website, stampercinema.com. But that's all I've got for you today. We will see you next week with another incredible 
Halloween adjacent episode right here on Stanford Cinema.